Hello and welcome back to Deep Dive, the podcast that's just one hit single away from becoming Japan's next big thing. I'm Oscar Boyd and on this week's episode we're discussing the life and recent death of one of the most influential and dominant figures in the Japanese entertainment industry, Johnny Kitagawa. Kitagawa was the founder of Johnny and Associates, a talent agency that created, curated and managed some of the country's biggest acts, acts such as SMAP, Arashi and Heisei Jump, all of which are household names in Japan. But Kitagawa's career was not without controversy. He was the subject of numerous allegations of sexual misconduct that were first reported in 1999 through an explosive series of articles in the weekly magazine Shukan Bunshin. The articles included accusations of child abuse and sexual exploitation made by several boys who had been under Kitagawa's wing. While Kitagawa was never actually charged with any crimes, rumours followed him until his death, aged 87, in early July this year. We'll get to those allegations later, but first let me introduce this week's guests. Joining me today to discuss Kitagawa's life and his impact on the entertainment industry are Patrick San Michel, one of the Japan Times' long standing entertainment columnists, and W. David Marks, a cultural commentator and author of Amitora How Japan Saved American Style, a book all about the history of American fashion in Japan. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So, Patrick, I want to start with you. You've been writing about entertainment in Japan for a very long time,、mm-hmm. um, about music in particular. So, could you fill us in with the basics of who Johnny Kitagawa was? Sure. Well, to start from the very beginning of his life,、uh, Johnny Kitagawa was born in the late 1930s and he sort of jumped back and forth between America and Japan growing up, eventually settling in Japan in the 1950s. Where he worked at the American Embassy in Tokyo. And one day, this is the origin story that has been presented to the masses, he saw a group of boys playing baseball in Yoyogi Park.、Mm-hmm. And he, I guess, developed a relationship with them. And one day they all went to see the film version of West Side Story. Okay. And Kitagawa was, he saw an opportunity. He thought, oh, Boys singing and dancing? This is an idea that can't miss. So, using these baseball boys, he started his first pop group. And what year was this, roughly? This was in around, I want to say, the early 60s. Okay. They were called the Johnnies after himself. And they got a little bit of attention because at the time, this really was kind of a novel idea. So, this group, the Johnnies,、uh, it's fair to say they were one of Japan's earliest boy bands. I think that's fair. Are they one of the world's earliest boy bands? Ooh, that's a good question. It depends where you want to put like the Beatles and Right,、this. sure, sure. So, maybe not. But in terms of <laughs> idols, which is, you know, non, non musically performing. Right. To be very clear, and this is a consistent throughout the Johnnies、uh, collection, the majority of their artists don't really play instruments,、mm-hmm. they are singers and dancers. And he keeps Putting, he puts out another group in 1968 called The Four Leaves. They similarly get a little bit of attention, but nothing、mm-hmm. really to like hang your hat on and be like, oh yeah, this is huge. And just throughout the 70s and early 80s, Johnny Kitagawa keeps plugging away at the music 
and entertainment industry, but he doesn't really have a major hit until the late 80s with Hikaru Genji. Okay, tell me about Hikaru Genji and David, maybe you want to jump in to talk about some of this as well. Yes, they're before my time, but I believe they're roller skating themed. <laughs> this is a constant, let's just get this out of the way. Yeah. One of the constants of the Johnny and Associates world is he really likes his artists to know roller skating. <laughs> Even today, like in the year 2019, where nobody roller skates, like he still has his groups learn roller skating and will do these elaborate roller skating choreographed dances. Hikaru Genji is the first. If you go onto YouTube, you can find old TV appearances by them. And yeah, it is just like a roller (laughs) rink extravaganza. It's also worth noting the Bay City Rollers, who I believe are not roller skaters, but the Bay City Rollers, the Scottish boy band of the 70s were enormous in Japan. Mm-hmm. And even though that kind of boy band model was working in Japan, Johnny's version of it was not working. Until Hikaru Genji, where then it just takes over the music market and they're the number one artist from the late 80s onward. And what is it about Hikaru Genji that uh, kind of prompts their fame? Is it just the music market catching up to Johnny's ideas or are they doing something special and unique at the time? Besides roller skating? Besides roller skating. I'm trying to think. In the 80s, you didn't really have too many boy bands as we know them today. You had plenty of idols and idol groups consisting of young women Mm -hmm. that were doing well in the market. And then you had sort of older male singer-songwriter types and like bands and stuff doing well. Hikaru Genji probably just came at a time when a certain demographic was looking for this type of pop music. And I think up to that point, nobody was really providing it. Now... Because Johnny's acts after Hikaru Genji were also incredibly successful, people seem to see it as just a, you know, then Johnny's is huge and, you know, end of story. But it's worth noting, and so I did my master's thesis uh, in Japan on the Japanese entertainment world, and one of the Mm -hmm. things I looked at was the influence of being on TV shows, these three music shows, Hey 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 Music Champ, and uh, Utaban, a music station, and if that helped you get hits on the Oregon chart and things like that. And so I you know, did a bunch of counting and, and math and things. And after Hikaru Genji, basically, Johnny's falls out of the music market. You know, They don't score any big hits after that. Okay. And the reason was because the market got taken over with kind of the anti-Johnny's, which was the band boom. But because Johnny's had set up this really elaborate system with... TV producers and had a lot of influence on the entertainment world, Mm -hmm. he was able to keep his artists on TV all the time. So even though they weren't selling, uh, they were on TV all the time, all the time, all the time. And so when he had a new artist, he'd say, you know, hey, Music Station, I've got this new artist called Smop. You should put them on TV or Kinky Kids or whoever. And then from the mid-90s onward, Smop and these groups become just massive, massive smashes as the J-pop market grows. J-pop also isn't one of these things that just kind of grew little by little, it just exploded in the late 80s with kind of the rise of the mini CDs, Mm -hmm. which were much cheaper that people could buy with karaoke. So there was a reason to know the songs because you're going to go sing them. And then also more women-oriented music. Um, So women became huge consumers rather than just men. So the the market explodes and Smop and Kinky Kids are for the ride. But, you know, there was a really big chance had the system been much more focused on, oh, what is selling and we're going to put that on TV that these... Johnny's artists could have just gotten completely wiped out. Okay, and then it's in the 1990s with the explosion of SMAP that Johnny's becomes truly embedded yes. within the Japanese and the mul- multiple artists. And the, the the interesting thing that he did was he later founded his own record label, but. For a long time, he would give each of the artists to a different record label. So the whole industry was kind of tied up in Johnny's. 
And then he would print things like calendars for the bands and, and um, different merchandise. And he would give them to all the different publishing houses, et cetera, et cetera. And so he basically integrated so well with the entire media complex that he became too big to fail, which is that if Johnny's goes down, a lot of people lose money. And everyone also had a little bit of their earnings kind of tied to how well Johnny's was doing. And so you didn't be the, want to be the one that got cut out of it. And then by the 2000s, um, with, you know, Arashin Say Jump and just these multitude of groups, again, he just spread out across the entire industry. And as that 1990s music industry wave crashes, so people start buying less music and everything is starting to collapse, the idol groups stay because they have these fan bases who don't necessarily care about the quality of the music or the music itself. What they really care about is the idols and they're obsessed with the idols and they're going to buy everything from the idols. <laughs> and so as normal music consumers, casual music consumers kind of drift out of the market. These idol-obsessed consumers stay there. And so then Johnny is, you know, goes back up to number one all the time. So Johnny at this point, or Johnny and his agency, are profiting from a holistic approach to the entertainment industry. They're not just going music, music, music. It's music, it's calendars, it's film. It's the thing that he's everywhere, basically. I think Johnny's really was maybe ahead of the curve in, in the 90s, was realizing that pop music in particular was not just about music anymore. Uh, the thing with Smop that worked so well is... Obviously, as David mentioned, he had all these connections with the music shows and labels and other companies, but he also brought that to acting. The members of SMOP were starring in movies. They were starring on TV shows. There was some study done that said, like, you could see a member, a specific member of SMOP on primetime TV five days a week at one point. Wow. Just omnipresent. A good antidote I've always had. I have a, I talked to a Japanese friend about SMOP once and they are like, oh, SMOP's not really a pop group. It's more like Mickey Mouse. It's a cultural touchstone. Mm -hmm. It's so much more than music. And Johnny wisely realized it's about their personality. It doesn't even, he's gone on record in Billboard interviews saying like, I don't really care about records. That's boring. He wants to create stars. Mm. And that's what he's done. He's created these idols who people can connect to and project their own sort of images on and just develop a link with. Just the whole uh, brand, not a band thing in action. Right. The music is an advertisement for the stars. Yes. Right. Mm. And so the music market is how he got to start and how he defined the groups. But the way you make money is not through music. And this is true, you know, not just with Johnny's, but if you look at any of these Jimmy Show entertainment talent companies, the way they make money is that you develop a star, you make them a star. Music is a great vehicle for that. And then you sell them to corporations for advertising. You're building the stars to be TV commercial friendly anyway. And he did that, but then also put them on TV and just created this whole media world. And um, just from these three TV shows that I counted from 1988 to 2004, I found like who was on every week for this period. And, you know, Johnny's, uh, compared to all the other entertainment companies, was number one with a, with a bullet. And they had uh, 1,089 appearances on these shows where, you know, only five artists or six artists are appearing every week. So, you know, almost 1,100 appearances for this, you know, decade plus uh, which was way more than anyone else. And, you know, again, if you were a star who didn't have one of these powerful agencies and you had a hit, sometimes you'd be invited on once to perform your hit song, then the minute you don't have a hit, you're gone. But they were just so ubiquitous that every week it didn't matter if they were selling or not, they would be on these TV shows. So yes, they just took over the landscape. Um, and now you may ask the question as well, 
if male idols are making so much money in a normal free market, wouldn't someone say, hey, I know, I'm going to make my own idol groups mm. with men. And um, that happened a little bit with uh, Rising, which was uh, Nami Amaro and some of those big acts in the 90s uh, groups. So they created The Pump, which is, you know, they're still pretty big, and Wins. And so they created rival groups. And one of the, the, the things that Johnny's would do is more or less um, – if any of those rival groups were on a TV show, they would not appear. That was the general policy. Okay, so he would say, if the pump uh, on a TV show, SMAP or yes. whoever can't. And go if on. you and I like have the numbers proving this idea. So this was kind of something that's rumored at. But if you look at Hey Hey Music Champ in the '90s, when the pump and Wind start appearing, Johnny's just disappear from the show. So oh, very interesting. Um, so basically, this was one of the levers to pull of. Of it's been very, very difficult to have male idols. So the, there's lots of female idol groups from different companies, and that's had a lot of competition. But the male idol world has been almost a, uh, a solid monopoly by this one company, Johnny's, because um, once they set up and once they set these rules that you were not allowed to coexist with other male idols, it kind of made it difficult for most media companies to not use just Johnny's. Okay, I want to come back to the topic of media control later, but I'm actually interested also in how Johnny's went about creating these groups. So Patrick, if you could maybe talk us through that, how Johnny's uh, actually created the talent and scouted them. Yeah, Johnny and Associates' whole approach to it is very, it has been compared to yeah, a pop music factory. The idea is he will scout talent, he'll hold auditions, he'll find attractive young men who have they don't necessarily have to be polished they just have to have something that certain can work in look. a pop group certain look yes and and mothers and sisters and things will send in photos of their sons to That's these competitions point, yeah. and like especially from outside of Tokyo it's like kind of a dream for your child to become a Johnny star and okay. so um, there's this huge talent pool from across the country and you know one of the things I often hear is that he really likes kids who have a little bit of that um, kind of Yankee delinquency look to them. So a non-polished, non-sophisticated, non-Tokyo look. So mm -hmm. more kind of the the attractive teenage delinquent from your high school in Fukushima, you know, that kind of feel. And so he that was kind of the talent pool that comes in. Okay, so he scouts these people or mothers are desperately sending pictures of their yeah. children into Johnny's. Once he selects a pool of people, what, what happens to them next? Usually he'll put them in what he calls or what the company calls uh, a Johnny's Junior group, which you could kind of imagine as like a minor league team version of a proper Johnny's group. This and how, how old are we talking when you say Johnny's Junior? It ranges. I mean, they get as young as like, I'm trying to think. Some of them have been as young as like 10 to 12. And then you get into your higher teens and even early 20s. And this is a place where they can sort of develop their skills as singers and dancers. They still do concerts. They still sometimes put out music, but since they haven't properly, air quotes around this, debuted mm. on a proper label, they are still considered just, yeah, like minor leaguers. They're there to develop their skills, connect with some fans. So eventually when they do debut, they have this built-in following that's like started with them from the bottom and now they're here. So it's in, in many ways very similar to a sports team when you have kind of your under 15s under 16s yeah, under 17s and, teams. Yeah. fun fun trivia smop's whole like like idea was i mean smop stands for sports music assemble people which is not catchy <laughs> so good on them for 
shortening that. Yeah. But yeah, Johnny Kitagawa definitely had sort of a knowledge of like, especially with SMOP, he was like, you know, people love sports and that's going to be even bigger in the future. So he does kind of bring this sports model to it. And to his credit, this model, this factory-like model has been adopted by a lot of other countries, uh, entertainment industries, most notably a handful of Korean pop companies like SM Entertainment, mm-hmm. which is home to groups like uh, Shiny and NCT, boy bands that are really big globally. They have directly stated, oh, yeah, the Johnny's model is great. We're adopting this for our market. You probably don't have exact figures, but how many people would he take in and how many stars would that result in? That's a good question. I actually, yeah, I don't know specific numbers, but... but Johnny Jr. is big. It's not five kids. It's like a hundred or something. You know, right? that's true. Okay. It's a big field. And only, I mean, yeah, plenty don't ever debut. Some of them just toil away for years and then, all right, thanks for coming by. So yeah, no, it's still very competitive within there. Mm-hmm. So you do have to prove yourself. It's not just a guaranteed thing, but I don't have specific figures. That's a good question. I'd like to go into some more depth about a topic we were talking about earlier. So what was Johnny's relationship with the media and how did this help cement him within the entertainment industry? So the first thing to note is that if you look at the United States or UK or even Korea and look at the parallel to a Johnny's type figure, so if you look at David Geffen or in Korea, like the president of SM Entertainment, these people have names and faces and they do interviews and you've seen them before. And with almost all of the heads of these entertainment companies in Japan, they're all basically absent and mysterious. And so Johnny, um, there were always these kind of weird paparazzi photos of him, but he very, very, very rarely appeared in front of the media. So there's that kind of mystery, and there's also the the private uh, nature of the, the company. So then when it came to also how he worked with the media, it was somewhat similar, which is there was a lot of control and general feeling if you don't want to mess with this company. Um, I mentioned before the pressure of if you're going to put a rival on the TV show, then we're going to pull all of our artists. I mean, this is a kind of also common thing in the industry, so it wasn't just Johnny's. But it was kind of a carrot and stick model, which is that he gave all these great benefits to the media industry, as I said before, you know, gave every record label basically had a Johnny's act. The publishing companies all had their different calendars and things to print and could make money from. Uh, but at the same time, really, really strict control of uses of photos of the artists and things like that. So the, the kind of funny example in the last couple of years, which I think maybe has changed, but it was still the same, which is if you went to Amazon mm-hmm. and you were going to buy a magazine that had a cover of a Johnny's artist on it, the image would have a grayed out kind of silhouette of where the Johnny's artist was <laughs> um, because they did not have the rights to even have the image. So this is like an object so that exists something in the world. they're trying to sell. Yeah, they're trying to sell this. And, and Johnny's has given permission for the artist to be on the cover of the magazine, but will not give Amazon or anything online the right to use this image. Um, so that's how strict they were. On the more extreme side, um, when a SMOP member was arrested, when people are arrested, uh, the TV stations refer to them as something like their name and then suspect. And for some reason, when the SMOP person was arrested. They did not use suspect, but they just called them uh, member. And so this was a pretty big scandal because it was like, this is how much TV news was even 
uh, bowing down to Johnny's pressure that they would not use the standard format of anyone arrested as called a suspect. And this is because the TV news channels are also tied into entertainment shows that might run on the same network. I mean, that's the idea. I mean, well, you know, with all of this, you can't necessarily put two and two together because we don't have that proof. But like, why otherwise would they do that if mm-hmm. they don't for, do it for anyone else? So they were very, very strict on all media of how these artists were presented. And it made it very difficult for normal media to run Johnny scandals and things. So, And what kept this cycle going? Because, I mean, obviously Johnny's needs the media to get his people out into the public eye to get them distributed across Japan, across Japan's TV networks and other entertainment networks. Why wasn't the media able to break this cycle and kind of seize control back from him? It's, you know, it's like a classic game theory problem or something. But basically, if you have all of them are benefiting from Johnny succeeding... And then if one breaks the pact and says, hey, we're going to publish negative news or we're going to use a rival or something, then they lose everything because Mm. it can go instantly to the rivals. He just very, very smartly played all these media companies against each other so that they wouldn't dare cross him because their rivals would all benefit immediately from that. So he never put all his eggs in one basket and said, only NHK, you're having... Yes, all my music right. to start yes. with. It was always spread out. And right. A good way to look at it, I think, is after Johnny Kitagawa died this past July, the day after, you could turn on any of the morning news shows. The majority of them in Japan had a Johnny and Associates talent on the show already because they had just been a fixture there. None of the darker details or negative things about Johnny and Associates, of course, would be brought up at that point. And it was almost just like a real eulogy coming from these talents who were just like rhapsodizing about him and getting like real emotional that to me is a really good summary of how he used the media to make sure he always had the positive image he wanted so let's move on to those darker details and the allegations of sexual abuse that were made against johnny and associates I have to say now that he was never actually charged with any crimes, yet rumours and allegations have followed him for more than 30 years. Where did these start? I mean, so the first was that a bunch of very, very minor publishers came out with some books of former Johnny's talent who made these allegations. Those kind of existed and they were in the market, but, you know, everyone kind of ignored it. The really big moment where it got center stage was in 1999. Shukan Bunshun, which is one of the big tabloids and is not tied up into these media networks the way that um, other ones are, mm-hmm. did a huge expose, kind of series of stories on Johnny's. And they made all sorts of allegations ranging from they let the young talent smoke cigarettes, even though they weren't supposed to, to sexual abuse. So it was this kind of a huge range. So these articles were big and sensational, made, a, made the whole country kind of talk about it for a second. Not national TV, not newspapers, but everyone was kind of buzzing about it. I think um, someone in the diet actually picked it up and said, hey, we need to you know, look at these allegations. Uh, Johnny's, of course, sued, saying this is all libelous, and it went to court. Johnny's won the first round, and so it was, there was a big fee, a, a fine on Boonshun that needed to pay. So you think, okay, so maybe these were all fake allegations. Uh, it then went to the appeals court where they actually called the boys to testify, called Johnny's to testify. It was a pretty serious trial. And what they came back with was not all of the statements in Boonshun were, were necessarily credible, but the sexual abuse allegations were credible. So the, the really you know bombshell one was credible. Uh, the one about smoking apparently was not. And so they still had to pay a fine for that, which okay. is kind of interesting. Um, so Boonshun saw this as a big victory. 
enough for Johnny's to then go to the Supreme Court with the case. Uh, but they lost at the Supreme Court. The appeals ruling stayed. And so I think we should read this as Shukan Bunshun's allegations were proven in court to be credible. You know, whether proven to be true or not is, is difficult, but they were proven to be credible enough to have published. And they're pretty damning allegations about mm-hmm. not just sexual abuse, but sexual abuse of underage employees. And the allegations were that um, kind of as part of this competitive environment within Johnny Jr.'s uh, Kitagawa was using his control to get sexual favors or otherwise from the wannabe stars. Yeah, and the you know the accounts in in these articles are from the boys and, and it describe in kind of painful detail of exactly what happened. Now from there, you know, there was no criminal action. But when it just comes to the idea, were these rumors and allegations? Sure, there are rumors and allegations. There's all sorts of rumors and allegations about lots of things. But this actually went to an appeals court, and it almost made it to the Supreme Court in in this case, and they were found to stand. Uh, Mainstream media barely reported on this. And when they did, they reported in it almost like Johnny's wins appeals court case because a couple of the claims had actually been found to be um, somewhat libelous. It wasn't even presented of, hey, Boonshun wins and all these things are credible. So the story was buried in mainstream media and it kind of went away. Um, but, you know, New York Times covered this in 2000. It was it was a serious story. And at the time, a lot of people thought that was maybe the end. Um, but that was almost just the beginning. You know, from there on, Johnny's went on to be more and more successful. Right. That's when they really cement themselves. Like in the 2000s and 2010s, every group just always goes to the top of the charts despite all of this. What is difficult to understand about this outside of Japan is if something like Vice Magazine or something like um, the New York Post or uh, Mother Jones or some publication were to write a series of exposés, the mainstream media has to deal with it. So either they do a follow-up story, say, we also did an independent investigation and Mm -hmm. found these to be true or not, but they don't just get ignored. It's like kind of part of, oh, that must be true or not true. And I think what's interesting about Japan is that things that are in the newspaper are true. And things that are in these weekly tabloids, people in the know say, yeah, that's that's probably true. And they act as if it's true. But it doesn't become just kind of common sense or conventional wisdom. Mm-hmm. It stays in this weird limbo of everyone kind of knows it's true. But if it hasn't been in a newspaper, it's not really true. And I think a lot of these allegations stayed at that level as well. That, yes, Shugan Bunshun reported these. Yes, it went to trial. Okay, okay. But like, in, if it hasn't been in Asahi newspaper, or it hasn't been in Nikkei, then it's like not a real thing that we have to take seriously. So that gives kind of deniability to all the major media companies to continue to use Johnny's, even though these allegations were confirmed in court. And why were there no follow-up stories by these big papers. You know, you you can put two and two together yourself, but, you know, as you said before, if the media control is that strong and the profit motive is that strong with this media, it's, it's not uh, in their financial interest. You know, I think, like, a lot of times people see Japan as being something other than capitalistic, and, you know, that's an American thing, but, you know, the, the bottom line, uh, you know, revenue targets of these companies matter, and when you have the risk of not being able to sell albums and have people on your TV shows and calendars not being sold, uh, that's, that's a pretty big financial risk that most companies don't want to take because what's, what's the value in it to them? When we look to the UK and US, it's often after these moguls of whatever industry die that a lot of stuff comes out about them in the media. People suddenly feel like they're free to report. Has anything changed over the last month since Kitagawa's death? I would say regarding these allegations, uh, not really. And you know, 
in general, I haven't seen any mainstream media, whether it's newspaper or TV news, return to these claims and really like poke at them. At least not yet. Who knows? That could change. Mm -hmm. I have noticed, at least online, on social media sites like Twitter, I do think a lot of people are more willing to like remind the world that this whole thing happened. Now, whether that carries over to the media, I'm not sure. A few things have changed, though, since Kitagawa died. The main thing was, following his death, there were reports that the Fair Trade Commission would be investigating claims that Johnny and Associates were preventing three former members of the group SMOP, who a few years ago famously broke up in this, like, media spectacle that lasted a whole year. They go out on their own. They've started successful careers as Instagrammers and YouTubers. Mm -hmm. So finally embracing the internet. Yeah, yeah. But this report came out saying, you know, Johnny's has been trying to not let these guys get on terrestrial TV because beyond just being competition, they also left the group voluntarily. So there's, like, extra bad blood there. I think before this wouldn't have gotten as much attention, but now, yeah, people are looking at it and being like, well, that's not good. Part of that is because SMOP is so beloved, mm -hmm. more so than any other J-pop group ever, probably, that even Johnny and Associates can't stop people from getting angry about mistreatment of former SMOP members. <laughs> but the fact that's kind of getting attention in the media and actual mainstream media is, I think, pretty significant and shows that maybe things are changing. Yeah, it's very small steps, but I think there's more attention to these abusive practices in the entertainment industry. And it's not just Johnny. It's like all these major entertainment companies do this. Any star who leaves the agency is blackballed. That's a kind of famous thing. And, you know, now there's new companies picking up these blackballed talents and actually trying to recreate their careers and go around the system. But now the internet allows you to do things. Being international allows you to do things. So you can go to a different country and do advertisements um, because they don't have the same, you know, blacklisting rules. Mm -hmm. But the degree to which the, the industry is still able to blacklist talent is kind of incredible. I mean, it means that there's a lot of people who are making decisions at uh, entertainment companies, TV stations, uh, advertising firms who, when the phone rings and says, you cannot use this person, they say, okay. <laughs> you know, um, so that's, that's pretty incredible that that power is still there. But it is breaking, and we're having a discussion about it. And the, in, in Japanese, the discussion seems to be growing. So that's a good sign. And so, you know, Johnny's is still a really robust, strong, powerful, influential company, despite um, Johnny's death. But um, some of these techniques that bolstered their power, I think, are getting more scrutiny, and we'll see what happens. Well, David, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. You've been listening to Deep Dive with me, Oscar Boyd. Thanks very much to my guests, W. David Marks and Patrick San Michel. You can find more from both of them online. I'm also delighted to announce our first podcast, Baby. Shortly after Patrick recorded this episode with us last Friday, his wife gave birth to a healthy girl called Nina. So congratulations to the entire family. If you're enjoying Deep Dive, you can find more episodes just like this one on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thank you as always for listening. And until next time, Podskare Sama. Thank you.